Chapter One of Prester John. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Prester John by John Buchan. Chapter One: The Man on the Kirkcaple Shore. I mind as if it were yesterday my first sight of the man. Little I knew at the time how big the moment was with destiny or how often that face seen in the fitful moonlight would haunt my sleep and disturb my waking hours but i mind yet the cold grew of terror i got from it a terror which was surely more than the due of a few truant lads breaking the sabbath with their play the town of kirkcaple of which and its adjacent parish of portincross my father was the minister lies on a hillside above the little bay of capel and looks squarely out on the North Sea. Round the horns of land which enclose the bay, the coast shows on either side a battlement of stark red cliffs, through which a burn or two makes a pass to the water's edge. The bay itself is ringed with fine clean sands, where we lads of the burg school love to bathe in the warm weather. But on long holidays the sport was to go farther afield among the cliffs, for there there were many deep caves and pools where podleys might be caught with a line and hid treasure sought for at the expense of the skin of the knees and the buttons of the trousers many a long saturday i have passed in a crinkle of the cliffs having lit a fire of driftwood and made believe that i was a smuggler or a jacobite new landed from france there was a band of us in kirkcaple lads of my own age including archie leslie the son of my father's session clerk and tam dyke the provost's nephew we were sealed to silence by the blood oath and we bore each the name of some historic pirate or sailor-man i was paul jones tam was captain kidd and archie need i say it was morgan himself our tryst was a cave where a little water called the dive burn had cut its way through the cliffs to the sea there we foregathered in the summer evenings and of a saturday afternoon in winter and told mighty tales of our prowess and flattered our silly hearts but the sober truth is that our deeds were of the humblest and a dozen of fish or a handful of apples was all our booty and our greatest exploit a fight with the roughs at the dive tan work my father's spring communion fell on the last sabbath of april and on the particular sabbath of which i speak the weather was mild and bright for the time of year i had been surfeited with the thursdays and saturdays services and the two long diets of worship on the sabbath were hard for a lad of twelve to bear with the spring in his bones and the sun slanting through the gallery window there still remained the service on the sabbath evening a doleful prospect for the reverend mr murdock of kilchristie noted for the length of his discourses had exchanged pulpits with my father so my mind was ripe for the proposal of archie leslie on our way home to tea that by a little skill we might give the kirk the slip at our communion the pews were emptied of their regular occupants and the congregation seated itself as it pleased the manse seat was full of the kirkcaple relations of mr murdock who had been invited there by my mother to hear him 
and it was not hard to obtain permission to sit with Archie and Tam Dyke in the cockloft in the gallery. Word was sent to Tam, and so it happened that three abandoned lads duly passed the plate and took their seats in the cockloft. But when the bell was done jowing, and we heard by the sounds of their feet that the elders had gone into the kirk, we slipped down the stairs and out of the side door. We were through the churchyard in a twinkling, and hot foot on the road to the dive burn. It was the fashion of the genteel in Kirk Capel to put their boys into what were known as Eton suits, long trousers, cut-away jackets, and chimney-pot hats. I had been one of the earliest victims, and well I remember how I fled home from the Sabbath school with the snowballs of the town roughs rattling off my chimney-pot. Archie had followed, his family being in all things imitators of mine. We were now clothed in this wearisome garb, so our first care was to secrete safely our hats in a marked spot under some wind-bushes on the links. Tam was free from the bondage of fashion, and wore his ordinary best knickerbockers. From inside his jacket he unfolded his special treasure, which was to light us on our expedition, an evil-smelling old tin lantern with a shutter. Tam was of the free kirk persuasion, and as his communion fell on a different day from ours, he was spared the bondage of church attendance from which Archie and I had revolted. But notable events had happened that day in his church. A black man, the Reverend John something or other, had been preaching. Tam was full of the portent. A nigger, he said, a great black chap as big as your father, Archie. He seemed to have banged the bookboard with some effect, and had kept Tam for once in his life awake. He had preached about the heathen in Africa, and how a black man was as good as a white man in the sight of God, and he had forecast a day when the Negroes would have something to teach the British in the way of civilization. So, at any rate, ran the account of Tam Dyke, who did not share the preacher's views. It's all nonsense, Davy. The Bible says that the children of Ham were to be our servants. If I were the minister, I wouldn't let a nigger into the pulpit. I wouldn't let him farther than the Sabbath school. Night fell as we came to the broomy spaces of the links, and ere we had breasted the slope of the neck which separates Kirkcaple Bay from the cliffs, it was as dark as an April evening with a full moon can be. Tam would have had it darker. He got out his lantern, and after a prodigious waste of matches, kindled the candle-end inside, turned the dark shutter, and trotted happily on. We had no need of his lighting till the dive burn was reached, and the path began to descend steeply through the rift in the crags. It was here that we found that someone had gone before us. Archie was great in those days at tracking, his ambition running in Indian paths. He would walk always with his head bent and his eyes on the ground whereby he several times found lost coins, and once a trinket dropped by the provost's wife. At the edge of the burn, where the path turns downward, there is a patch of shingle washed up by some spate. Archie was on his knees in a second. Lads, he cried, there's spore here, and then after some nosing, it's a man's track, going downward, a big man with flat feet. 
it's fresh too for it crosses the damp bit of gravel and the water has scarcely filled the holes yet we did not dare to question archie's woodcraft but it puzzled us who the stranger could be in summer weather you might find a party of picnickers here attracted by the fine hard sands at the burn mouth but at this time of night and season of the year there was no call for any one to be trespassing on our preserves no fishermen came this way the lobster pots being all to the east and the stark headland of the red neb made the road to them by the water's edge difficult the tan-work lads used to come now and then for a swim but you would not find a tan-work lad bathing on a chill april night yet there was no question where our precursor had gone he was making for the shore tam unshuttered his lantern and the steps went clearly down the corkscrew path maybe he is after our cave we'd better go cannily the glim was doused the words were archie's and in the best contraband manner we stole down the gully the business had suddenly taken an eerie turn and i think in our hearts we were all a little afraid but tam had a lantern and it would never do to turn back from an adventure which had all the appearance of being the true sort halfway down there is a scrog of wood dwarf alders and hawthorn which makes an arch over the path i for one was glad when we got through this with no worse mishap than a stumble from tam which caused the lantern door to fly open and the candle to go out we did not stop to relight it but scrambled down the screes till we came to the long slabs of reddish rock which abutted on the beach we could not see the track so we gave up the business of scouts and dropped quietly over the big boulder and into the crinkle of cliff which we called our cave there was nobody there so we relit the lantern and examined our properties two or three fishing rods for the burn much damaged by weather some sea lines on a dry shelf of rock a couple of wooden boxes a pile of driftwood for fires and a heap of quartz in which we thought we had found veins of gold such was the modest furnishing of our den to this i must add some broken clay pipes with which we made believe to imitate our elders smoking a foul mixture of coltsfoot leaves and brown paper the band was in session so following our ritual we sent out a picket tam was deputed to go round the edge of the cliff from which the shore was visible and report if the coast was clear he returned in three minutes his eyes round with amazement in the lantern light there's a fire on the sands he repeated and a man beside it here was news indeed without a word we made for the open archie first and tam who had seized and shuttered his lantern coming last we crawled to the edge of the cliff and peered round and there sure enough on the hard bit of sand which the tide had left by the burn mouth was a twinkle of light and a dark figure the moon was rising and besides there was that curious sheen from the sea which you will often notice in spring the glow was maybe a hundred yards distant a little spark of fire i could have put in my cap and from its crackling and smoke composed of dry seaweed and half-green branches from the burnside thickets a man's figure stood near it and as we looked it moved round and round the fire in circles 
which first of all widened and then contracted the sight was so unexpected so beyond the beat of our experience that we were all a little scared what could this strange being want with a fire at half-past eight of an april sabbath night on the dive-burn sands we discussed the thing in whispers behind a boulder but none of us had any solution belike he's come ashore in a boat said archie he's maybe a foreigner but i pointed out that from the tracks which archie himself had found the man must have come overland down the cliffs tam was clear he was a madman and was for withdrawing promptly from the whole business but some spell kept our feet tied there in that silent world of sand and moon and sea i remember looking back and seeing the solemn frowning faces of the cliffs and feeling somehow shut in with this unknown being in a strange union what kind of chance had brought this interloper into our territory for a wonder i was less afraid than curious i wanted to get to the heart of the matter and to discover what the man was up to with his fire and his circles the same thought must have been in archie's head for he dropped on his belly and began to crawl softly seawards i followed and tam with sundry complaints crept after my heels between the cliffs and the fire lay some sixty yards of debris and boulders above the level of all but the high spring tides beyond lay a string of seaweedy pools and then the hard sands of the burnfoot there was excellent cover among the big stones and apart from the distance and the dim light the man by the fire was too preoccupied in his task to keep much lookout towards the land i remember thinking he had chosen his place well for save from the sea he could not be seen the cliffs are so undercut that unless a watcher on the coast were on their extreme edge he would not see the burnfoot sands archie the skilled tracker was the one who all but betrayed us his knee slipped on the seaweed and he rolled off a boulder bringing down with him a clatter of small stones we lay as still as mice in terror lest the man should have heard the noise and have come to look for the cause by and by when i ventured to raise my head above a flat-topped stone i saw that he was undisturbed the fire still burned and he was pacing round it just on the edge of the pools was an outcrop of red sandstone much fissured by the sea here was an excellent vantage ground and all three of us curled behind it with our eyes just over the edge the man was not twenty yards off and i could see clearly what manner of fellow he was for one thing he was huge of size or so he seemed to me in the half-light he wore nothing but a shirt and trousers and i could hear by the flap of his feet on the sand that he was barefoot suddenly tam dyke gave a gasp of astonishment gosh it's the black minister he said it was indeed a black man as we saw when the moon came out of a cloud his head was on his breast and he walked round the fire with measured regular steps at intervals he would stop and raise both hands to the sky and bend his body in the direction of the moon but he never uttered a word it's magic said archie he's going to raise satan we must bide here and see what happens for he'll grip us if we try to go back the moon's o'er high the procession continued as if to some slow music 
I had been in no fear of the adventure back there by our cave, but now that I saw the thing from close at hand, my courage began to ebb. There was something desperately uncanny about this great negro who had shed his clerical garments and was now practising some strange magic alone by the sea. I had no doubt it was the black art, for there was that in the air and the scene which spelled the unlawful. As we watched, the circle stopped, and the man threw something on the fire. A thick smoke rose of which we could feel the aromatic scent, and when it was gone the flame burned with a silvery blueness like moonlight. Still no sound came from the minister, but he took something from his belt and began to make odd markings in the sand between the inner circle and the fire. As he turned, the moon gleamed on the implement, and we saw it was a great knife. We were now scared in real earnest. Here we were, three boys, at night in a lonely place a few yards from a great savage with a knife. The adventure was far past my liking and even the intrepid Archie was having qualms, if I could judge from his set face. As for Tam, his teeth were chattering like a threshing-mill. Suddenly I felt something soft and warm on the rock at my right hand. I felt again, and lo, it was the man's clothes. There were his boots and socks, his minister's coat, and his minister's hat. This made the predicament worse, for if we waited till he finished his rites, we should for certain be found by him. At the same time, to return over the boulders in the bright moonlight seemed an equally sure way to discovery. I whispered to Archie, who was for waiting a little longer. Something may turn up, he said. It was always his way. I do not know what would have turned up, for we had no chance of testing it. The situation had proved too much for the nerves of Tam Dyke. As the man turned towards us in his bowings and bendings, Tam suddenly sprang to his feet and shouted at him a piece of schoolboy rudeness, then fashionable in Kirk Capel. Walk hauled ye parton face, my bonny man. Then clutching his lantern he ran for dear life, while Archie and I raced at his heels. As I turned I had a glimpse of a huge figure, knife in hand, bounding towards us. Though I only saw it in the turn of a head, the face stamped itself indelibly upon my mind. It was black, black as ebony, but it was different from the ordinary negro. There were no thick lips and flat nostrils. Rather, if I could trust my eyes, the nose was high-bridged, and the lines of the mouth sharp and firm, but it was distorted into an expression of such terror and devilish fury and amazement that my heart became like water. We had a start, as I have said, of some twenty or thirty yards. Among the boulders we were not at a great disadvantage, for a boy can flit quickly over them, while a grown man must pick his way. Archie, as ever, kept his wits the best of us. Make straight for the burn, he shouted in a hoarse whisper. We'll beat him on the slope. We passed the boulders and slithered over the outcrop of red rock and the patches of sea pink, till we reached the channel of the dive water, which flows gently among pebbles after leaving the gully. Here for the first time I looked back and saw nothing. I stopped involuntarily, and that halt was nearly my undoing, for our pursuer had reached the burn before us, but lower down, and was coming up its bank to cut us off. 
At most times I am a notable coward, and in these days I was still more of one, owing to a quick and easily heated imagination. But now I think I did a brave thing, though more by instinct than resolution. Archie was running first, and had already splashed through the burn. Tam came next, just about to cross, and the black man was almost at his elbow. Another second and Tam would have been in his clutches had I not yelled out a warning and made straight up the bank of the burn. Tam fell into the pool. I could hear his spluttering cry, but he got across, for I heard Archie call to him, and the two vanished into the thicket which clothes all the left bank of the gully. The pursuer, seeing me on his side of the water, followed straight on, and before I knew, it had become a race between the two of us. I was hideously frightened, but not without hope, for the screes and shelves of this right side of the gully were known to me from many a day's exploring. I was light on my feet, and uncommonly sound in wind, being by far the best long-distance runner in Kirk Capel. If I could only keep my lead till I reached a certain corner I knew of, I could outwit my enemy for it was possible from that place to make a detour behind a waterfall and get into a secret path of ours among the bushes. I flew up the steep screes, not daring to look round, but at the top, where the rocks begin, I had a glimpse of my pursuer. The man could run. Heavy in build though he was, he was not six yards behind me, and I could see the white of his eyes and the red of his gums. I saw something else a glint of white metal in his hand. He still had his knife. Fear sent me up the rocks like a seagull, and I scrambled and leaped, making for the corner I knew of. Something told me that the pursuit was slackening, and for a moment I halted to look round. A second time a halt was nearly the end of me. A great stone flew through the air, and took the cliff an inch from my head, half blinding me with splinters, and now I began to get angry. I pulled myself into cover, skirted a rock, till I came to my corner, and looked back for the enemy. There he was, scrambling by the way I had come, and making a prodigious clatter among the stones. I picked up a loose bit of rock and hurled it with all my force in his direction. It broke before it reached him, but a considerable lump to my joy took him full in the face. Then my terrors revived. I slipped behind the waterfall, and was soon in the thicket, and toiling towards the top. I think this last bit was the worst in the race, for my strength was failing, and I seemed to hear those horrid steps at my heels. My heart was in my mouth, as careless of my best clothes I tore through the hawthorn bushes. Then I struck the path, and, to my relief, came on Archie and Tam, who were running slowly in desperate anxiety about my fate. We then took hands and soon reached the top of the gully. For a second we looked back. The pursuit had ceased, and far down the burn we could hear the sounds as of someone going back to the sands. Your face is bleeding, Davy. Did he get near enough to hit you? Archie asked. He hit me with a stone, but I gave him better. He's got a bleeding nose to remember this night by. We did not dare take the road by the links but made for the nearest human habitation. This was a farm about half a mile inland, and when we reached it we lay down by the stackyard gate and panted. I've lost my lantern, said Tam, the big black brute, 
See if I don't tell my father. Ye'll do nothing of the kind, said Archie fiercely. He knows nothing about us and can't do us any harm. But if the story got out and he found out who we were, he'd murder the lot of us. He made us swear secrecy, which we were willing enough to do, seeing very clearly the sense in his argument. Then we found the high road and trotted back at our best pace to Kirk Cable, fear of our families gradually ousting fear of pursuit. In our excitement, Archie and I forgot about our Sabbath hats, reposing quietly below a windbush on the links. We were not destined to escape without detection. As ill luck would have it, Mr. Murdoch had been taken ill with a stomach ache after the second psalm, and the congregation had been abruptly dispersed. My mother had waited for me at the church door, and seeing no sign of her son, had searched the gallery. Then the truth came out, and had I been only for a mild walk on the links, retribution would have overtaken my truancy. But to add to this, I arrived home with a scratched face, no hat, and several rents in my best trousers. I was well cuffed and sent to bed, with the promise of full-dress chastisement when my father should come home in the morning. My father arrived before breakfast next day, and I was duly and soundly whipped. I set out for school with aching bones to add to the usual depression of Monday morning. At the corner of the nether gate I fell in with Archie, who was staring at a trap carrying two men which was coming down the street. It was the free church minister. He had married a rich wife and kept a horse, driving the preacher of yesterday to the railway station. Archie and I were in behind a doorpost in a twinkling, so that we could see in safety the last of our enemy. He was dressed in minister's clothes, with a heavy fur coat and a brand new yellow leather Gladstone bag. He was talking loudly as he passed, and the free church minister seemed to be listening attentively. I heard his deep voice saying something about the work of God in this place, but what I noticed specially and the sight made me forget my aching hinder parts, was that he had a swollen eye and two strips of sticking plaster on his cheek. End of chapter 1